Welcome to Mastering Agility. If you want to listen to authentic conversations with the most inspiring guests, find like-minded people in the Mastering Agility Discord community or both online and face-to-face events, this is the platform for you. Grab a drink, sit back, and join professional scrum trainers Sander Dorr, Jim Sammons, and their guests in an all-new episode. Gentlemen, Dan, Jim, good afternoon. Good morning to you, basically. How are you guys doing? Hello. Good morning. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me, Jim and Sander. Yeah, it's it's another beautiful morning here in the U.S. It's uh, not too bad. Weather's nice. Good. Dan, what has been a highlight of your week so far? Ooh, a highlight of my week so far? Um... Well, I got a new bed last week, and so I'm finally adjusting to that. And so I'm starting to see my uh, perennial chronic back problems start to ameliorate. So that is a after after that being a problem for several years, oh, I'm very imagine. excited about about I that mean, part of my week. One of the things that we discuss <laughs> elaborately over and over in this podcast is uh, one advice that at some point got from someone, and again, I don't remember who it was, but they told me. Make sure that you get a job that you like that brings you energy because you spend about a third of your life working. So make sure that you get a, a nice job. The other part is you spend about another third of your life sleeping. So make sure that you get a proper bed because it, it's going to save you so much. Oh, and the mattress salesman will use that uh, a lot on you when you're trying to upsell you to the the more premium. It's a third of your life, man. Just do the math. You got this mattress for 10 years, you know, how eight hours a night you know, per hour. It's an investment in your life, in your health, if you will. Exactly. We call that, we call that benefits framing and uh, price structure. All right, go on. Tell me more. That was, that was about my question. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, well, the, uh, you know, you see this a lot, right? So if I, if I uh, charge you, a, it would take, you know, gym membership and say it's a hundred dollars a month or say it's, it's only $3 a day. Oh, well, that's the bargain. Same price. I just framed it totally differently. Right? You sell the uh, benefits of a better, uh, you know, being able to play with your kids longer versus, you know, if you're not a competitive athlete, like why are you going to the gym, right? So you're talking about the benefits you, you know, to, to frame the value, and then you change the way the price is framed to frame the price uh, more attractively. So the mattress salesmen do the same thing. Is it because you, you, work with pricing all the time and pricing of products. And is it hard for you to detach that mindset and the way that you price these products in a, in a sales conversation like this? Cause I can imagine that you're just poking holes in their logic. Uh, I, I love it. So for me, it's not a burden. I mean, you know, I've just got a weird brain where I nerd out on this stuff. So for me, you know, some people are really into, I don't know, whatever they're into, uh, crypto or, uh, you know, you know, the financial markets or whatever, I, I nerd out on pricing. So for me, it's just kind of something I'm really passionate about. How much of pricing strategies do you feel is an education play? Like I was talking to somebody yesterday and just a real simple example for my life is I realized in my house, I probably have a dozen cheap disposable lighters that are not refillable. I live on in the country. I have to light things on fire a lot. I, we burn things. So I invested in a good lighter that is refillable. And it's only like a few dollars more than the disposable thing. It's safer. It's more flexible. 
and it'll probably last 50 years unless I lose it or take care of it. So, but even I, I know better, like I know playing the long game and making a more strategic choice and thinking about things like how often am I going to use this? How many do I need and all that? But when you bring it back to pricing, you and I might think, well, geez, that's only a 10%. Let's say it's a 10% increase in price, but you're getting 20x the lifespan of something along with decreased risk and you know higher flexibility. Is that an education problem or is that a pricing problem? This is a really deep topic. Let me use another example. So if you're have you ever gone to the hardware store trying to buy a light bulb? And you're sitting in the light bulb aisle at Home Depot or Lowe's. I don't know what the hardware stores are in the Netherlands. Oh, center. I apologize. But you know, you've got your incandescent bulb for you know ninety nine cents. You've got your compact fluorescent bulb for you know four ninety nine, and then you've got your LED bulb for I don't know nine dollars ninety nine cents. So you've literally got a ten x price. They all produce light. So if you read the box. You know, the the complex fluorescent says it lasts longer than incandescent. It doesn't generate as much heat. It lasts longer. The LED makes more extreme claims. Oh, this will last 20, 30, 100 times longer than an incandescent. You know, uses less energy. So they'll try to make an argument about, you know, how much is your energy bill costing you, right? So all of those are those companies trying to make value statements, to justify their price. There's a found, there's a couple of foundational relationships in pricing. There's two really. One's related to volume. This is the supply demand curve. We all got taught in our econ 101 classes. Two is a relationship to value. Now I deal predominantly with B2B software. So in those cycles, this value education process and understanding value and being able to find it precisely and support it is tends to be much more important than in a consumer setting because they're much more involved purchases with a lot more, you know, and when you have a business buyer, they are usually concerned about some sort of return on their investment, whether that's helping them decrease costs, increase revenue, increase profit, you know, decrease risk, you know, whatever it might be. Consumer it's a little bit tougher for all of those situations. You've also got this problem of, okay, Mr. LED bulb producer, you've told me I will save this much in my electric bill over the course of 10 years, but I need to make a purchase decision now. I've got a $10 bill in my pocket. I need to decide if I'm going to spend you know 10% of it or 100% of it. Am I going to remember... Say, say the bulb only lasts five years. Am I going to keep this receipt and come back to Home Depot in five years and saying, you said this was going to last 10 years. How much have I been promised before by other vendors saying that they would improve my life? And so there's a risk discount. There's, will I care? Uh, you know, this is future me 10 years from now or five years from now having to make this purchase again. Will I care that much? And how much do I trust the vendor of this product? And so those decisions are very difficult, especially in a B2C. And this is a thing that I use this example because the LED bulb manufacturers, when they first came out, I think they were even more 
extreme. They were they were more like a 20x difference. And they could justify it, you know, if you believed their value proposition. But they reached this point of consumer education and you know the risk that customers are sitting there trying to make a purchase decision, looking at the shelf, being like, I don't know, a light bulb's a light bulb. I gotta get on with my life. This is not that much important of a decision. I'm gonna spend a dollar. So that's just a coy example of yes, it's it's education, but it, it also draws in this fundamental relationship between value and price. And ultimately in the B2B world, value is usually what is you know lacking definition, clarity, communication. Interesting. And my first real agile job um, was working with consumer software. And I remember we had a pricing analyst on the team and it was, again, you know, I was not new to the industry, but I was new to agility and I had never had a team member who's like my whole job or a huge part of my job is a cost analyst and a pricing analyst. And I'm like, whoa, like I was kind of fascinated to think about what goes in to figuring out how much we should charge for our thing that my team was building. But what I was dismayed to see, Dan, and I'm curious if you and Sundar have seen this, is he just was winging it. Like the, It seemed like the primary thing that he led to or that, that fed into how much we could charge for our software was what our competitors were charging for similar software. And a little sprinkling of feedback from a few customers about, hey, if we asked this much for it, what would you say? So is that enough? Like, is that good? Is that normal? Am I just expecting too much of, you know, like I'm th- I might be thinking John Nash out in a shed, a beautiful mind style with all these pricing algorithms going. And you're going to tell me, well, yeah, dude, like he's just winging it. But that, that's all that's what that's better than nothing. What do you think? So many directions I could go. Should you have a pricing analyst that's winging it? Uh, absolutely not. That makes my heart sad. Uh, I think that pricing in general gets this veneer of black box magic voodoo, but there is a science to it. There's art and science, but I think it's a lot more science than people give it credit for. You mentioned a couple of things in this person's analysis. And I'm sure there was a very good person and I wasn't there to observe his work, so I can't comment directly, but there's generally going to be four inputs to any pricing decision, your costs, your competition, customer willingness to pay and customer value. The degree to which those factor into a company's decision often depends upon what we call the three C's of pricing or pricing orientations. So there's three general pricing orientations. There's cost-based pricing, competition-based pricing, and customer value-based pricing. So those are the three Cs. The last one usually just truncated to value-based pricing, but then we would have just two Cs and a V and marketers don't like that. It's way easier, better to have three Cs. So what's a pricing orientation? A pricing orientation is what, how is pricing done around here? What is it that we care about when we make a decision. And so I view those three pricing orientations as a journey. You almost think of it as a ladder. There's people here like, oh, we want to do customer value-based pricing. And I go, great. would love to get you there. Less than 20% of companies worldwide, less than 20% of the companies of the S&P 500 actually do 
value-based pricing. It's very hard, very challenging. It's a North Star to be aimed for, never to be reached uh, fully. Um, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. But you can't say, hey, we've just developed this product. We want to do customer value-based pricing. And I go, great. What's your what's driving your cost of goods sold, your COGS? And I go, I don't know. I was like, all right, well, let's start there. Because as a business, it's very bad if you're selling $20 bills for $10, you're going to go out of business very quickly. Um, so while costs usually in a SaaS business, your variable costs, AWS fees, storage, compute, network, uh, are relatively minimal, you do want to make sure that you're right side up, that you have your unit economics figured out because actually you've got a whole bunch of other costs that aren't your pure sort of cost of goods sold, your cost of uh, uh, acquiring, onboarding, retaining customers, right? Those are all costs we need to make sure that we, we you know, usually not in the COGS line if we look at a P&L, uh, but we want to make sure that we got a viable business. You know, this is where the idea of CAC TV ratios come in where we want to make sure that, you know, what's the lifetime value of this customer as long as they stay with us, like how much value we're going to drive out of them. And like, is that in relationship to, you know, how much cost we can drive? So we want to have a sense of, like, do we have a viable business? And ultimately, you know, costs at the early stage may be the only thing that you have to go by, but you Problem is, you know, customers ultimately don't care about your costs. They care about their problems. So you justifying how much you're charging based upon your costs is not an argument that's going to persuade anybody. I've never bought a piece of software and asked a vendor, how many hours of engineering time did you spend? How many lines of code are in this piece of software? Because I, I don't care. That's not my job. Like, that's not my responsibility. I care about the job it's going to do for me and what I could go get with my money from other places. Um, so, you know, we do need to then graduate to this idea of competition-based pricing. So I, again, it's a ladder. I don't forget about my costs, but I do need to take into account, you know, other details, you know, the market participants are engaging in a, you know, a free market economy. There's other ways they could get their job done, including what they're doing today. Often status quo is a very powerful competitor alternative that we don't uh, look at. There's indirect uh, competitors. A fun example there is, you know, if I'm working on, I'm, I'm not a smoker, but you know, see, I was working on something hard um, and I'm, I'm at work and I want to take a break. I could go open up Facebook or I could go out and have a cigarette break. In that case, both are competing for the same job that I'm trying to do. So Facebook and nicotine are direct, <laughs> indirect competitors in that case. But you know, I want to understand what are the other ways that customers are trying to get this job done because they're going to be looking at other possible alternatives. And so, you know, like cost-based pricing, it's generally simple to understand and execute. You know, data is not necessarily as readily available as cost-based pricing. Like, like, look, the CFOs love cost-based pricing because I put it in a spreadsheet. I know all my costs and I apply a markup. Uh, the thing is, right, the, the, the magic trick that they don't understand because they look at the spreadsheet and like, oh, it's all hard data. That markup is still qualitative. Like we do cost-based pricing and you apply like, oh, well, we have an 80% gross margin. We like, that wasn't handed down to you from the gods. You, you decided to make that right. So even there it's, it's qualitative, but it looks, it looks rigorously mathematical. Um, but look, ultimately competition isn't where I should stop. And why not? Because there's 
only really three ways to grow a SaaS business, acquisition, monetization, or retention. I don't know any CEO of a company that would outsource their product development strategy or their marketing strategy to their competitors. So they're going to outsource the uh, the only other major lever in their business to their, their competition. Furthermore, you know, you guys are heavily in the world of you know, product and, and development. I come from a, we didn't talk about my background at all, but you know, I spent many years in product management, product strategy roles. I learned very early on there um, not to get overly excited, enthusiastic, bought in to whatever my competitors were releasing from a product perspective. It's like, oh, they came out with version 2.3. It's got all this stuff. I could look at that and be like, well, that looks interesting. You know, does that help me understand something about the market that maybe I'm not seeing? But anyone who's been around the block for long enough in product management or development knows that list could have been a fever dream of the CEO and the executive team. You know, there's no rationale behind it. Maybe it's the CEO's golfing buddy who's their biggest customer who demanded that list of features and nobody else cares. But furthermore, we can think of pricing and packaging. It's a set. There's no silver bullet. You're always needing to make trade-offs given the current assets of your business, where you stand in the market, uh, what you bring to the table in terms of you know intellectual property, where you're trying to go, what customers you're going after. And you're going to need to make trade-offs in order to de- determine, all right, what is, our, what is our offer, right? Southwest Airlines needs to make very strategic decisions when going up against you know United or well, bye-bye spirit, I guess, but you know, um, right? And so- if I just fully copy my competition's pricing and packaging, I'm inheriting a bunch of unknown risks. I'm inheriting a whole plan, a whole strategy that I don't understand what the trade-offs were that resulted. All I can see is the is the is the final result. And you know, I've been in this situation. It's it's funny because I know a lot of other pricing people. So I've had clients who are who will use some version of an argument with me, like. Hey, um, we really want to do X, and I'll be like, "Well, why?" I'd be like, "Well, because competitor, you know, Y does does X," and I go, "That's interesting," because <laughs> because I had been talking to the head of pricing there <laughs> a few weeks ago, and he was telling me how much they hate that part of it, and that they're working on changing that. And so we make this assumption that everyone, you know, you use the Wayback Machine. You know, go to any uh, SaaS pricing website and go back over the course of years. It's constantly evolving, constantly changing. And so, you know, just making the assumption of like, oh, well, they must all be happy with where they're at, right? So we're going to go copy it. So all those reasons, I think, are just terrible reasons to copy your your strategy or copy your competitors. And then we get to value-based pricing, like, which ultimately, I truly believe that, you know, value, going back to what I was saying before, is the most least articulated, well understood, even within a company, like you would be surprised the amount of times I go into a company and say, who is your customer and why do they buy from you? And I get met with a lot of blank stares. You would think that that would be like question number one, everyone would be like here X and Y. And it's like, nope. So 
I really believe that, you know, ultimately, yes, customer value is important. You know, really making sure you understand how you deliver customer uh, value for customers. You know, why, you know, what are the value metrics that they're using? Value metrics is how customers judge the success of your product. Are you helping them generate more uh, closed one leads, more opportunities, more profit, more revenue, you know, again, re reducing a risk. That's mostly in the B2B world. Again, B2C is a little bit different. Um, you know, a Timex and a Rolex, same functional requirements. Actually, the Timex, probably a better timepiece, but people are buying it because of status and intangible factors. But in the B2B, is usually much more economic uh, drivers. So, and those and different groups of customers will care about different economic drivers and value your product differently. And so then we need, that really puts us in the mode of really deeply understanding our customer and then being able to support that value story. Now it's the, why do I, I started this whole uh, rant by talking about only 20% of customers or, or of companies really do value-based pricing. It's because it's, it's the most difficult. It's the most vague. Um, there's rarely a, uh, it doesn't, it requires a lot of managerial judgment and market research. And, it, and it, you know, as I used before with the spreadsheet, there's rarely sort of an exact right price. And it requires an entire go-to-market model that supports the value. So it's not that your pricing team can go into a, a room, do some spreadsheet and be like, we help you know, customers achieve a you know, 100% or 500% ROI in year one. Because as soon as, you know, your sales team is on the phone with a prospect and they're like, I've heard this story from the LED light bulb manufacturers and it wasn't true then. So prove it to me. They've got to be able to back up that value story. Same with customer success, same with support. The entire organization has got to be able to you know back that up. And so it, it requires an entire shift in mindset ultimately, but that doesn't mean you can't, you know, make baby steps along the way. Speaking of which, because we deliver our products mostly incrementally, right? Um, yet the price always stays fixed, pretty much. Sometimes a markup over the years. But have you seen any cases where the products, the, the price changes because of the value that gets added or whatever it's doing, but that you get a gradual shift continuously, that like the pricing of the product would fluctuate, like it would be with gasoline, except now with a different type of product? So is the question, have I ever seen value change in an organization and price follow along with the change in value? Yes, all the time. Probably less than I would like, but all the time. What would you, do you feel that there would be a benefit to that if you would do that more widespread with the products that we deliver, whether that's in, in, in technology or healthcare or, or whatever, that it would be fluctuating over time continuously based on the value that would be delivered or economic hardship or uh, based on that. But because uh, we seem to be preaching that we uh, deliver our products in an incremental way, we got to inspect and adapt, yet pricing never changes, not that much. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's a few different ways this kind of question usually arises. And so there's, there's one is, you know, uh, how often should we be changing our pricing? Hey, we're, we're shipping, you know, every sprint, a sprint is two weeks. Should we be changing our pricing and packaging every two weeks? Um, or, you know, we haven't changed prices in 10 years, you know, is it do, are we due for a, for a price increase? 
the first thing I'll say is that pricing is not a price is a thing, but pricing is a process. And like any process, we need to treat it like that in our company, right? We have a product development process and we've got a go-to-market process, right? So pricing is not fixed in time. Why is that? Because your product value is changing, as you mentioned, your competitors are, are changing. You've got new entrants. You've got they're changing their pricing and packaging. Um, they're changing their offer and their value. So your relative differentiated value compared to those uh, are changing. Um, we've got macroeconomic factors that are changing. Um, I love the you know the year long annual planning cycle that folks wrapped up in December of 2019 that you know those beautiful powerpoint 150 page powerpoint decks all got tossed in the trash march 1st of 2020 when covid struck we're like well there goes whatever we thought was going to happen um so there's always something going on and so then the question becomes how often should we be changing it how do we know we should be changing it um, the answer is you should be changing it every 271 days. Um, that's mathematically derived. I'm totally kidding. Um, there's uh, <laughs> uh, because I think that's what people expect. Um, I'll let me put out some general rules. Um, best in class companies are doing something with their pricing packaging once a quarter. Um, I would say good practice is be doing something at least annually. And if you haven't done something in the last two years with your pricing and packaging, just go, just immediately go start working on that now. So, so that's a generally a good range, three months to two years. Um, what does that, you know, fluctuate on? You know, is there a major shift in the market? Did you just deliver, you know, a new set of functionality, new set of value? Did you just acquire a company and need to merge them into your product portfolio? And now we need to like rationalize, right? So portfolio pricing and packaging becomes a, a consideration, or maybe you organically launched a, a brand new product or new module, right? So there may be you know, specific trigger points along the way, but you should always be revisiting it. And I was having a conversation with a CEO, we were talking about doing a project together and uh, you know, there's a, a sort of an elaborate you know, discovery process beforehand where I'm trying to figure out, Hey, what are the challenges you're having? Why are you looking at changing your pricing and packaging? Why are you looking, bring in someone from the outside to help you, et cetera. And so in between the, you know, one of those sessions, he goes, you know, we met say on a Monday and he goes, I, you know, we, we, we need to continue our conversation. He goes, Hey, I can't meet until the following Monday because we, because Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we've got a three-day executive offsite. And I go, okay, that's fine. Understood. And he's like, you got a lot to prepare for and a lot to go over. This is a CEO, remember, of Unicorn Startup. So we come back on Monday and I go, hey, like, you know, how'd the offsite go? Oh, it went really well. It was really productive. Great. What did you guys cover during your offsite that affect our project and our conversation here? Oh, nothing. We didn't talk about pricing at all. You had the most expensive meeting in your company for three full days and you didn't talk about one of the only three ways you can grow your business. That's a mistake. 
you know, that is a, that is a, you know, dereliction of duty. And if you're, if there's any board members listening to this, if your CEO ever says that to you, you need to have a serious sit down with them and be like, how did you not slot out a 30 minute conversation in three days to say, is our pricing and packaging in line with where it should be? Because we have one of these meetings a year and we didn't, we need to at least have a conversation about it. Um, you know, they they probably did have a pricing and packaging conversation, but they probably talked about things like conversion rates and sales cycles and net dollar retention. And look, all of those things are related to pricing and packaging. And your pricing and packaging is either sand in your go-to-market engine or it's, you know, uh, Castrol, you know, GX50 or whatever the, the top of the line is. Uh, and you definitely don't want it to be sand, but it's probably affecting all of those other critical metrics that your company's spending a bunch of time on. You're just sort of ignoring this other giant lever um, or, you know, again, outsourcing it to your competitors or letting somebody just tell you what it should be off of a spreadsheet uh, versus managing it as a strategic resource. I'm I'm curious, and I got so many things rattling around in my head. Um, I'm going to throw two at you, and you, you pick up one or both or neither of them. Um, last month, I was on a business trip, and I went into a, a very popular sandwich chain here in the U.S., and I wasn't paying because I have found that I am eating out way less because I think the price of eating out, even fast food here, has hit that whatever the you, – you know the industry term, whatever that level is where – it's no longer worth it. The, the The value to me is not worth the cost increase, like um, that customer level. Mm-hmm. But the the meal I used to order in the past, let's say, I don't know, three, four years ago, has more than doubled. And I mean, we're, we're talking about my average lunch in 2018 is now was $9 and 50 cents. And I, I know that I'm very confident in that you can Google it. And now it's $20 and 25 cents for the exact same components. Now I'm sure what I will be told is, well, yeah, Jim, but things are more expensive. People are more expensive. The, the trucks bringing us the goods are more expensive. Lettuce is more expensive. Sure. But so I'm intrigued because we see this all over the news, like when when Netflix adds another dollar to their thing or when Amazon starts charging an extra 250 to remove ads. And there's been a lot said around how you communicate those pricing changes, um, which is kind of where my question at the beginning about education comes from. And the other related but slightly different thing I will talk about is when I worked at a SaaS company, I remember the owners of our company who really, for lack of nobody else doing it, set the pricing strategy. Even when we felt like we had a very good and justifiable reason to increase the cost of something, they're like, no, don't do it. Because they didn't want to have the conversation with the small percentage of customers who might not want to see that $99 a month increase on their bill or their, you know, $8,000 a year increase on their invoice or whatever. And it almost felt like pricing didn't change incrementally as often as you're suggesting because they were afraid of those conversations. But I felt like that's kicking the can down the road because eventually you would have that conversation. And normally, instead of being a small incremental change, it was a much bigger change and the conversations changed. So I'm curious 
I don't know the words for <laughs> what I'm describing, but are those my uh, are are my feelings around that valid? And are they things the in the pricing industry talks about? Well, yeah. Well, you've opened up uh, maybe three hours of conversation there, but let's see if I can uh, uh, tackle it briefly. So I think the first thing is, you know, number one, all of us have a relationship with money. And what I mean is we've got an emotional relationship. There's this idea that was very popular uh, back in the day of what we call homo economicus, this totally omniscient rational actor who, you know, has full idea of what all the market alternatives is, does all the spreadsheet math, right? Even to figure out what to go buy for lunch and makes the optimal decision, right? Um, that person doesn't really exist, right? We all have these habits, biases, you know, emotions around money. And the fact that when we take a group of people who all have their, you know, whether you grew up rich or poor, right? It doesn't matter. You've got some weird, skewed, non-reality-based <laughs> relationship with money. We put them in a room together and call that that group a company that all of a sudden we're going to get rational behavior out of that group is, I think, a myth. So we've just go all of a sudden we're going to have a bunch of, you know, there's, there's probably some truth to psychology is whatever you're dealing with somebody and they seem like they're, uh, you know, not, uh, not fully like playing rationally. You're, you're really dealing with, you know, some, <laughs> some, you know, trauma that happened to them five between five and 10. Uh, there's, there's probably some truth to that. Anytime we're having sort of these conversations of like, you know, when I hear things like, Oh, there's this fear of having a conversation. It's funny because, um, I mean, look, trauma is not funny. I'm not saying trauma is funny. The trauma is terrible. But um, this, this bias towards inaction is a thing that folks who are really savvy, they exploit this bias in the market. Those people we usually call private equity firms. <laughs> private equity firms come in. They buy a company from the founders and the first thing they do is they raise the prices because all of the founders are like, no, we can't raise the prices. Those customers have been with us forever. John, like he, he bought from us in year one and we almost didn't make payroll, but that deal came in and I just couldn't think about it. You know, CEO exits, founder, founders exit, PO has the reins. They go, oh my God. Look at what the rest of the market is charging. Look at how much value we create for customers. They haven't raised prices in 10 years. I'm gonna, we're going to double prices. And they don't hear a peep. They don't hear a peep, right? So look, is that always the case? No. And price increase or price decrease, you're going to probably get some customers who churn because just by the fact that you're having to notify them that their price changed, some people are going to be like, oh, I didn't even realize we were still paying for that and like leave anyway. So even if you decrease price, like it doesn't, reduce the chance that they're churning. The other factor that you have to realize is that going back to this idea of homo economicus, right? Who understands all the different trade-offs and especially when we're in a B2B software world. I, you know, I'm not even saying like, you know, the Microsoft or SAP or Oracle, like the super mature products, but, but a product of any sort of relative maturity, it's been around for a few years 
if we enumerated the features, they probably got 150, 250 features, you could probably say, like, you know, they built at some point. I don't think I'd be out of the range of unreasonable. Most customers, they're not going to get past item seven or 10, right? Um, Home Economicus is going to read the whole list and compare it to your competitor's whole list and, you know, do <laughs> that person doesn't exist. And so what do we do? We use shortcuts as humans. This is where, this is why we have customer testimonials on our website. This is why we have logo gardens. Oh, look, Disney and JP Morgan and SAP and, you know, Google, they all buy from us. So you should trust us too, right? It's a shortcut of value communication that says, don't worry. We know that you don't want to do all the complex, rational work. So it said, we're going to help you make that decision more, more easily. And so why is that relevant? Because it's our job to you know, communicate our value effectively. And to do that, we've got to know what our value is. And we've got to be able to describe that to folks succinctly. And we've got to be able to understand who our customer is and, and why they value it and how we're going to make their lives better. Um, because they're not going to go through sort of that, that complicated sort of math uh, process. Um, and, and look, is there smart ways to, you know, like, look, if I, I deal with clients on multiple ends of the spectrum. So going back to the idea of like this fear, you know, there are, you know, the, the, the spectrum of behavior or risk that I see is, is quite wide. You've got everything from the full on cowboy, like let her rip, let's see what happens to, you know, I want, you know, all this market research and, you know, 20 different Excel models with scenario planning that, you know, and so I'm happy to meet people wherever they are. Right. Um, but the other thing that it brings up is there is intelligent rollout strategies. There is intelligent communication. Um, so, you know, things like, especially in a B2B scenario, which is very different than B2C where, so B2C, you know, I'm going to make a simplifying assumption. Let's, let's take it a company like Netflix. Netflix, if you took their customer base, you know, if they lose any one customer, I don't think they're going to really care. You get into a B2B software scenario, that's not the case. You often will have a very, you know, a very Pareto, 20% of your customers make 80% of your revenue. Like, oh my God, if we change the price on JP Morgan and they leave, like we're going to have a really bad quarter. Like we can't make that up with the rest of our transactional volume. Like if we lose that one, one deal. So what does that mean? That means, well, let's be intentional about the way we're rolling this out. Let's start with the ones that are smaller. Let's test. Let's see what happens. Maybe we want to get on the phone with JP Morgan and say, hey, we haven't changed prices in three years. We have delivered a lot of value. You know, we, we've had regular conversations about that value. You've agreed. This is what we're planning. What do you think? Right you know what, that seems, that seems reasonable. That seems fair. Or, you know, uh, you guys do that and we're, we're leaving. Right. And then, you, you know, like, look, everything's a negotiation. You got to understand sort of read between the lines, right. Don't take you know everything at face value. But, you know, if you're actually making similar changes with a set of other customers and actually watching what their real behavior is, that gives you a better read on what's actually going to happen. And so that is a way to help mitigate that risk. Look, there's, there's research or mathematical modeling you can do you, you will never be 100, you can never have 100% certainty of what customers will do before you make a price change. So thinking of that as a fallacy, like there, there is 
no risk-free decision in life. Even the status quo pertains to risk. And I think the other element, I'll just say this one more time, because the PE firms, I think, embody this is like, you know, while we don't want to have the conversation as business leaders, we do have a fiduciary duty to our companies. You know, if we're, especially if we're the CEO or the CFO seat of like, yeah, some of the decisions we have to make are uncomfortable. Like sometimes, you know, especially in tech, there's been a lot of layoffs. I'm sure they didn't want to have those conversations either. Maybe they could have avoided some layoffs if they had some uncomfortable conversations with customers about raising their prices. I'm not saying 100% and then across the board, but you know, you, there's there's very few uh, comfortable decisions that get to be made by people sitting in the big chairs. Mastering agility only works with organizations aligned with our values, and that's exactly why we are excited to work with our sponsor. Scrum Match is the free platform for professionals run by professionals. On Scrum Match, true Scrum Masters get hired by companies serious about the popular framework. The awesome people behind this platform have decades of experience, among them a professional Scrum trainer for Scrum.org. They have interviewed, trained, and coached hundreds of like-minded people, and they use this exact experience to make you stand out from the crowd and help you get in touch with companies looking for true Scrum Masters. So go to scrummatch.com and sprint to your dream job. Do you ever see like if if you would bring this up to one of your clients, say we've delivered so much value over the years, didn't change our prices, what we're planning. Have you ever seen, or isn't it the automatic response anyway that every client is going to say, uh, "No, the hell you will. I don't want you to to up the price. I don't want to pay more than I do now." Um, you know, I mean. Look, everyone has anchors, you know, anchoring is a real thing. And so, you know, depending upon, you know, where a client is, you know, they may be more or less anchored to where they're at, right? And there may be a more better or worse ways to persuade them off that point. And we haven't really made the distinction in this conversation. We're pretty late in the conversation, but, you know, I usually talk about pricing and packaging. Whenever I say pricing, I, I'm usually referring to both packaging is honestly the most impactful thing, which is, you know, how we're charging customers our price metric, our offer configurations, our pricing model, our price fences, then just the price level. And so, you know, in general, I'm rarely getting called in just for a bare bones price increase. Um, you know, for the most part, I would generally tell people if you're going to just thinking about just a straight up price increase, you probably don't need me and my services. I usually have called in where there's more significant structural changes that they're trying to make around their pricing and packaging simultaneously. Um, but, you know, sometimes if you come back with, you know, market data, they may be, you know, they're, they're used to selling at a certain price. Their customers are anchored to what they've been paying and potentially they may have not done any customer research with people who aren't aware they're offering who are not in their current customer base. I don't know about you, but I don't spend, I'm a pricing nerd and I don't spend most of my time going and looking at pricing for software that I'm not in the middle of buying or, or already paying for. Um, Cause I just got better things to do with my life. And I'm someone who does this for a living. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, you ask most people, you, you, there's ways to do market research studies where you ask people what, you know, sort of their willingness to pay is. And that's a whole discussion as well and how to do that properly. But it's not surprising for the market to come back and be like, oh, that, that for what you've described, that sounds like 2x, 3x, 10x what I, what the company is currently charging. Now, 
then it's a decision for that particular stakeholder to decide if they want to go the whole, you know, enchilada, right? Do I want to make progressive steps over time? Um, you know, it, those could be, they, you know, there could be, you know, very significant um, discussions be like, okay, well, we think we're 4X, uh, we, we could increase the price 4X, do we want to do that in one shot? And that would, could be part of the smart rollout strategy of like, no, we're going to, we're going to do 50% per year for the next X years until we hit that, because we don't want to do, you know, one giant 4X increase overnight, right? We want to be able to you know, bring people along, but we think ultimately that's where we're going. And, and so we're going to, you know, make, do a rollout like that. So what's, what's your thought on, bundling a price increase with a value increase like is it best to keep those separate or is that actually a very like if you can say hey you're you know let's take the recent amazon example you know they're they're now charging 299 for commercial free things in certain areas but if they also said we just signed this new studio up to deliver content or we now have more things in 4k or i don't know something else is that a good strategy or a bad strategy to bring those two things together? So the question is, is it, is it a good idea to talk about increases in value along with increases in price? Yes. And when you state it like that, it sounds ob stupidly obvious as yes. But a cynic would say, well, I don't like that. Um, I don't like that new studio, so I'm not. I don't want to pay $2.99 for something I don't care about. And what I've seen is these big companies who I assume know more about pricing than me. One month they'll release a price increase email out to a, a couple million people, and then you'll get that announcement the next month. And to me, it felt like why didn't you do that all at once? It felt like it would have been better. But again, I I'm not an expert in this area. So, in in that scenario. I, I don't know the specifics and I don't, you know, obviously you know, any given company could be doing any number of things. You know, there's no rule, you know, this is, I mean, it's even a tactic I, I sometimes suggest to clients. Um, say you want to do a 10% increase and say you, you do have a large consumer base. You'd be like, email 1% of your base. You're doing a 10% increase and see how many cancellation emails you get back. Like any AB test. What do we think? What do we hypothesize? What would we be comfortable with? If it comes below that, we're good with rolling it all out. Because once you announce it, there's nothing to prevent you from going back the other direction. But you probably don't want to do that once you've announced to everyone. That's a bad look. Uh, <laughs> um, so there's a, there's, there is a nuance I do want to talk about in your question, though, which is, look, what if there's... So first of all, when you're one thing that I think is been poorly done over the last year or, or say a couple of years, right? We've been having a 50 year high inflation. So I've seen a lot of announcements, price increases based on, Hey, our costs have gone up. What did I say at the beginning when we were talking about the three C's of pricing? Customers don't care about your costs. Live by the sword, die by the sword as well. Because if you're justifying your prices based upon your costs, one, 
that's a real tough position for a lot of software companies to be in because your marginal, your, your gross margin is pretty high. Like, you're, you know, it's like 80, 90% for a lot of uh, software businesses. So, so to say, oh, my our AWS bills are going up. Well, your engineering costs may go up. Your personnel costs may go up. Those are fixed costs. Those aren't your P&L. It's like, oh, like how much does it cost you to provision another server of the code, right? So you don't want to get in that argument as a software business. It makes a little bit, more sense if you're selling hammers at Home Depot on a on a two percent margin, and cost of wood and metal have gone up, and you're like, well, like now we are negative margin on every single hammer we sell, uh, so we've got to, you know, like the, the value we don't have a value argument. It's just the cost of goods, like it's it's metal and wood shaped into a form, um, so we've got to increase on our costs. Well, it could be a deliberate choice as well. That's what Microsoft did in the beginning with the Xbox, especially I think it was the Xbox 360 where they lost money on every single unit that would be sold, but they would make up in, in the amount of games that would be sold. So it could be a deliberate choice to, to deliver a negative. Yeah. Well, and that's, and that's a, that's a different business model. So I would call that like a razor and razor blades business model versus your know, standard subscription uh, models. Um, so you see that with uh, HP, with uh, printers and, and ink uh, Gillette, it's called razor, razor blades. Cause Gillette, you know, they sold the, the razor handle and then they, you know, sell the blade uh, cartridges and make all the money on there. Right. It, that's why your printer ink is <laughs> worth more, uh, I think per ounce than gold. Right. Um, Cause that's where all the, all the margin is And you know, but you buy a printer for a hundred bucks, um, you know, I I don't know when someone's going to invent one that actually works all the time, oh. but you know, we're still waiting for that. We'll have, we'll have AGI before we have printers that work hundred percent, but, but let me go back real quick to uh, Jim's point, because I think there's, there is an important lesson here, which is we do live in a world of mass customization. You know, we our marketing outreach or sales outreach. We have all these tools. Hopefully your companies are using some sort of tracking mechanism, whether it's, you know, uh, in the product, whether that's you know, Amplitude or Mixpanel or Heap or, you know, pick your, your, your product full story, pick your product of choice. And you say, hey, hey, Jim, hey, man, you know, from our estimates and our conversations, our customers success people with you, we think that we've helped your company generate an extra $100,000 this year. You know, we, you know, you've participated in our new, uh, creator Academy um, that was, you know, really successful. And so hopefully that's helped you, you know, use the product more effectively and generate more leads for your business. We noticed that you've been actively using, you know, the new feature, you know, XYZ every week um, that our, our team, you know, put out. So really happy to do that, you know, that you're, we're seeing that like, and we're committed to seeing our product improving in the future to ensure we continue to deliver all those experiences, deliver those value, we need to adjust our pricing, right? So I'm not talking about costs. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about the value that you received because I've been able to monitor it. And we've, you know, again, if the more involved the conversation relationship is, you know, I've got CSMs doing, uh, you know, QBRs, quarterly business reviews, right? To understand how you're judging value of the product. You know, and hey, because we value you as a customer, your loyalty, you've been with us for three years. We're raising prices across the board today, but we're going to keep your prices flat for the next six months, for the next nine months, for the next 12 months, for the next 24 months, because you've been a loyal customer. Just to let you know that at that point, your price is reset. So after that time, you know, by the way, if there's, you know, any problem with this, please reach out to us. So that's a structure that you could send that is completely right side up. It says, hey, you, you've gotten value. We, you know, 
you've acknowledged that value. You're using, you're actively using it. You know, we've, we've engaged in all these other support experiences outside the product, right? Both our, our customer success teams or our academies or learning materials that you've engaged with. And then also, you know, because you've been loyal, we're doing, you know, this special thing for you. And we're here to talk if this is really a problem, but most customers, what you'll find is that's a more effective message than, hey, our costs went Scale up. Scale of one to I've 10, Dan, how hard is effective. it for customers to define their value, your customers to define the word value for their product? 10, um, I would say, ooh, on average, it's probably a 2.5. Uh, I'm assuming, so you didn't tell me what was high and what was low. So one is egregiously bad and 10 is amazing. <laughs> Sure. Let's go with that. 10 is they have a perfect definition that everybody at the company can tell you about the value of their quantifiable value of their product. Uh, I would say 2.5 then. Okay. So yeah. that, that, that jives with what we've talked about in this podcast before, because the, the reason I ask is um, that's one of the things we've talked about on many episodes, which is every almost every book behind me, I bet you almost every book behind Sunder and probably many of yours talk about value, but I had a, a uh, big six consultant from one of the acronym agencies last week say, well, Jim, what's the agile definition of value? And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? Well, you know, like what, what is the industry's definition of value? And I said, I hate to say this, but it depends because, you know, I charge my co-host every time he says it depends, but, um, she really thought that there was a book behind me that I could open a page 65 and it would say, this is the definition of value. So all this pricing stuff you're talking about, like I, I love it all, but how do we start? How do we help the audience start if they are struggling because they're at a 2.5 out of 10 to define value? Like, do you have a, I, I'm sure you don't have a silver bullet. Yeah. Oh man. I, well, first of all, I've got, I, 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 well, I've got, I've got a set of silver bullets actually for this question. Ooh, nice. Um, this, this, this general topic is what I call value illiteracy. Um, so let's make everyone's a little bit more literate when it comes to value. Um, I agree. Uh, value is an abused term. Um, it's similar to market, similar to MVP, uh, similar to product market fit. Um, all of these terms have what I call the illusion of communication. We can all go into a room and we can say like, which market are we going after? Like, do we have product market fit? Oh yes, we have product market fit. Um, and everyone's talking past each other and no one means the same thing. Uh, value is, it falls in this category. So let's do some value definition. So I use, I stand on the shoulders of giants here. So I do have a book on my a couple of books on my bookshelf that that help us get to this definition. So um, two major frameworks. Um, the first one is Jobs to Be Done. Uh, it has many fathers all the way from Theodore uh, Levitt back in the '60s. Uh, he came up with the famous uh, "People don't want a quarter inch drill; they want a quarter inch hole." Uh, to uh, Clayton Christensen and Bob Mesta, who wrote "Competing Against Luck." Uh, to Tony Ulwick, who wrote uh, "What Customers Want." Um, Jobs to be done has many fathers, um, but I think it really helps us get a grounding in, in what value is. Uh, the other foundational um, father I used for this conversation is uh, 
a guy named Tom Nagel. Um, he wrote what is widely considered the Bible of pricing. Um, it's called The Strategy and Tactics of Pricing. It's very dense, uh, but it's excellent. If you are at all serious about pricing, I put it on your, on your uh, book list. But he's got a concept in there called the value cascade. So value cascade, we, you know, think of it, cascade, just a fancy name for a waterfall uh, because we're in a, in not in a visual medium. Just imagine um, a series of bar charts going from left to right where the leftmost bar is the highest or column chart, I guess it would be because they're, they're vertical, uh, where, the, where the column on the left is the highest and then, you know, a series of, of other columns. So it, it looks like a stair step or a waterfall. So he starts with a defining use value. So use value is, you know, we call this the sum of all potential benefits a customer could receive from a product. Co economists often refer to this as utility. So, and this is where jobs to be done comes in because jobs to be done helps us understand there are different types of jobs. There are functional jobs, and then there's two types of emotional jobs, a personal and social. So a functional job is things that help us you know, save time, increase, uh, make money, decrease costs, decrease operating capital, decrease risk. So they have a functional, you know, benefit. You know, when we talk about things about faster, better performance, right? We're talking about functional jobs. Emotional jobs, emotional, personal jobs have personal, uh, emotional value. So I've used the Timex Rolex example before. So Timex Rolex, Actually, Timex is the better functional job. People pay $10,000 plus for a Rolex because of the emotional job it does. It gives me status. It gives, makes me more confident. It makes me more attractive, whatever you, whatever you, you think, uh, you know, makes me happier in some way, right? That's an emotional outcome. And then there's uh, social emotional jobs in the Jobs to Be Done framework. So, you know, we are social animals. Not everything that we do is for ourselves. So this is very important if we're defining value in, say, example, government or a nonprofit where there may be, hey, we're trying to increase access for voting rights, for healthcare, for education. Right. These are these are pro-social things we're not doing for our own. Or, I mean, maybe we get some, you know, sort of emotional satisfaction on doing it. But, you know, the goal, the end goal is, is to increase some social outcomes, some social good. Um, so that's utility. But we don't get to, but when it comes to a pricing exercise, overall use value utility isn't enough. We can't stop there because, you know, the market sets the price for undifferentiated value. And so the second element of the cascade that that Tom uh, Nagel helps us understand is what he calls exchange value. Um, or he, I think he uses the term economic value, but, but we use the term exchange value. So, you know, it doesn't, let me use a very simple example. It doesn't really make sense to talk about, uh, you know, if, if I'm Toyota, hey, our cars get you from A to B as a justification for your pricing. Because all cars do that. The market has set the price for that undifferentiated value. Like it better, like if it, like our cars have seatbelts. Well, it better, like our cars have wheels, right? Like you don't get to, you don't get to price the fact that your cars have wheels or an engine or, uh, you know, <laughs> or seatbelts, right? It's like, those are, those are expected sort of baselines. The market has, and so from a pricing exercise, you don't have any power over that. You only uh, have power over your differentiated alternatives. So uh, another fun example sometimes uses, uh, let's imagine, so this is Gilligan's Island example, but because Gilligan's Island is getting a little bit old, maybe for your audience, <laughs> uh, we'll assume that Elon Musk is trapped on a desert Island. Um, okay. So Elon Musk, you know, 
worth 200 plus billion. I haven't checked Tesla stock today. So, you know, maybe it's plus or minus 100 billion today. But, you know, so Elon with his 200 billion, he's he's like uh, Tom Hanks in Castaway. Like he is he is on a deserted island. It's just him. Um, and he's there for for way longer than he wants to be. So ship captain shows up after he's been there for a long time and he's haggard and he's ready to get off. And the ship captain goes, hey, oh, Elon, like I can take you on my boat back to back to safety. At this point, what is the utility? What is the use value of Elon getting off that island? It is probably equivalent to his entire fortune, plus all the money he could borrow from all of his friends once he got back, because all of that material wealth has zero utility to him on a desert island. <laughs> Ship Captain B shows up It says, hey, Elon, you don't have to give me $250 billion. I'll take you for a million. Now there's a market price. So now ship captain A has a has a decision. I can exit the conversation or I could say, well actually, you know, Elon, I'll do it for a million too. And let me tell you why because, you know, I've got a, a mariachi band on my boat and we'll we'll we'll, we'll uh, you know, entertain you uh, on the travels. You can stay in my ship's captain's quarters so you'll be very comfortable. I I have a chef on board who will cook for you. So now what is he doing? They're talking about I'll charge you more and here's why you'll have a better experience with me. So now we have a market. Okay. So this is, this is the concept of exchange value. Cascade isn't done. Now we get to perceive value. The context of the customer and your ability to communicate the value of your product influences the value of your product in the customer's mind. The only perceived value creates customers willingness to pay. You could have, we talked about the light bulbs at the beginning. I have all these economic benefits. Does the customer understand it? Do they trust me? Do they care? Like, do they do they even know that they should care? Right? Like, oh, there's this, you know, there's a these social benefits of do you know how many light bulbs get thrown away into landfills and and kill the you know Australian sea otters every year? Right? Like, there's a there's a social economic there's a social cost, you know, or, or climate cost, or you know, environmental cost that you know they don't even know they should know about. But if they don't know that, they can't put it into their rationale. And so only the perceived value ultimately creates willingness to pay. Look, um, so that's where at perceived value, then we finally get into pricing and understand price. So why did I go through that? Because if we're talking about value, we really need to understand which element of value are we talking about? Are we talking about sort of total utility? Okay, that's interesting. But we can't capture that entire utility because there's other, you know, there's other players in the market we get to exchange value. Okay. What is our, what is our actual, you know, we, we return this sort of uh, revenue to our customers. We help them grow this much. We help them save this much costs. Okay. But how much of that is differentiated compared to what they are either doing now, which is status quo or our next best competitive alternative and then perceived value. How much can they, how much do they appreciate, understand, right? How much all that value communication stuff we talked about earlier, logo gardens, customer testimonials, uh, being able to quickly describe our value in a, in a compelling fashion, you know, throughout the organization, whether that's, you know, the front end sales folks or your website, um, your, your videos, your white papers, your, your free trials, uh, et cetera, to help uh, increase perceived value and, and all those elements then leading to driving customers willingness to pay. Does that help? It does immensely i yeah yeah be mindful of the time uh, of your time and, and uh, your time as well jim i got two two remaining questions left um first one would be where do you feel or what would you be your advice be for 
our audience listening in where to start thinking about their strategy at what point in their development uh, should they already define their their pricing and how to do it and the second question would be uh, what do you think is currently the most overpriced product in the market that you've seen um okay Ooh, hot take from dan all right abby <laughs> get your pen write this down <laughs> Uh, look, where can people start? I think going back to what I was saying before, pricing is a process. And so you should treat it like a process in your company. What does that mean? It means wrapping some governance about around it. Um, have a process, have an owner that's designated. Usually this means getting it off the CEO's plate explicitly, probably faster than they're comfortable with, because there's nothing worse than pricing and packaging being a problem. And you know, the ET meeting happens and once a month, the CEO comes in and yells at everybody because pricing and packaging is screwed up and everyone sheepishly looks around and they're like, well, I don't know who owns it. I might, you know, and then there's nothing changes. So designating someone to own it, having a, what I generally recommend is not having an owner, but also a pricing committee. Uh, we don't have time to sort of get into the, the whole logic behind that. Um, the other thing is, you know, just simply having a discounted policy and enforcing it. Those are two separate things, by the way. I've seen plenty of companies that go through what I call discounting theater, like TSA, when you go and you take off your shoes and your belt, but really do any of us feel actually safer because we did this whole song and dance at the, at the airport. Um, I've seen a lot of companies where they have a discounting policy. It's, it's in a spreadsheet somewhere, but it's either never looked at or anything that's actually requested gets approved. So, you know, 100% approval rate. So, so we're kind of all going through the motions. Uh, so those are, I think, two very straightforward ways that you could start to do something. Start making small changes, you know, raise your prices a little bit. Do a 5%, do it, do a CPI level increase. Oh, we're doing a 5% increase, right? Let's see, did the world collapse, right? Um, and then you can build from there. But I think have it, treating it like a, the process that it is instead of an event and having an owner and having a, a you know, a structured uh, way, a cadence by which you have the conversations will put a lot of companies in a much better position than I see them today. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Um, over the most overpriced product. Oh man. See, the thing is, it's all about perceived, it's all about my perceived value to determine what I believe is price versus willingness to pay. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I guess I would say like, I don't understand people who spend more than $10 on a bottle of wine. Um, so I would just say all wine over $10 because to me, um, you know, I just, I've, I, you know, it, it gets into the level of ridiculousness, right? There's some good, uh, Netflix documentaries on people who go to these auctions and pay, you know, $10,000 plus for a, for a single bottle of wine. And I, I've never in my world ever tasted a, a wine that would make me want to pay, you know, more than $10 for it. So. Nice. I like that, but I'm also not a wine connoisseur. So, you know, that's just my perceived value of the product. Again. Yeah. <laughs> I have the same thing with with Apple, right? I always think that most of the Apple products are are overpriced, and I know that's a rough thing to say to Americans. But uh, now we saw the new Apple Vision Pro, and that thing sells for three and a half grand. I'm I'm an I'm an Android person, Android and PC all the way. So uh, you could talk crap about Apple all you want. Sweet. <laughs> so here we go. Have another hour. Now, when I saw that the Apple Vision Pro. And the thing costs three and a half grand, and I think it's awesome. And it looks it looks great. And if I would have three and a half grand to spend right now, I would immediately buy it. So, 
I think it's an interesting perspective again for the, of the perceived value versus what it actually delivers for for you. It's those those than more than ten dollar bottle of wine. Jim, what about you? Oh, uh, most overpriced. I mean, besides that twenty dollar sandwich I mentioned earlier, hash browns. Like, I don't know for me, and this might anger people. It's probably <laughs> the what I would call the vice industry, right? Like. Um, Red Bull cigarettes, um, vaping stuff. Like I just, I don't know, knock on wood. I don't have any of those vices. So I know people that blow hundreds of dollars a month on things that actively make them unhealthy. Yes. I, yeah, I know. And that's the hardest thing. And so I don't know if that's overpriced. Like I think a 50 cent cigarette is probably overpriced because it's just, I just can't wrap my head around it. But I, I also, I, the, I, I have, I actually have a better answer than my wine one. Cause as you were talking about, I think the thing that's making me angriest, and I think it's making a lot of people angry these days is the perpetual increase in tipping uh, defaults. Mm. Um, I think those are over. I'm, I'm a big fan of service workers. Um, but I think, you know, anyone who's used one of those toast pads or anything, you know, we went from 15%, 18, 20% being it to now it's 20, 25, 30, you know, I've even seen like 30, 35, 40%. Um, and, and there's tipping everywhere. Um, and you know, there's a whole other conversation we could have because I think those feel like un- unexpected fees. It's the same reaction people have when they see like, oh, I got this deal on an airline ticket. Oh, it's going to cost me another hundred dollars to check a single bag. And people have that reaction. Airbnb had this with their cleaning fees earlier this year where Brian Chesky had to hop in and be like, hey, this is an active area we're going to try and clamp down on. Whenever people have those unexpected surprise fees, it really reduces uh, what uh, they call transaction utility, which is, I feel like I'm getting screwed here at the end of the deal. It's the same thing when you, you finally negotiated for a car and then they bring you into the financing and the true coat, uh, you know, at the end of the deal. And you're like, like, I just spent three hours negotiating the core thing. And now you're trying to tack on all these things at the end. So I felt like I was getting a good deal and now it's flipped around. So there's a lot of those psychological principles I think are really, uh, you know, irritating to me, but, um, uh, you know, there's a reason they do them because people pay them and they're, and they're, they're effective to a point. I think we'll see probably with tipping my, 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 if I had to prognosticate on what the future will be, uh, we'll probably, we'll probably have a severe backlash on that at some point people start putting into zeros and then you're going to have a have to have a serious policy conversation around what we pay service workers in the U S. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think I'll just sum up my answer is basically any of those vices and I'll, I'll lump fast food in there because I'll tell you, that's another one. I used to be a fast food junkie and I eat out maybe once a week, if not once every two or three weeks now. And every time I do it, I'm mad at myself because the quality is decreased. The price is drastically increased. And I know it's actively making my life worse, not better, but there are a number of reasons why it is what it is. Um, but yeah, that's my answer. Sunday. Sweet. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Dan, thanks for being here. Yep. Thank you, Dan. I had a great time, gentlemen. Hopefully uh, your audience finds some value in this conversation. Thank you. I'm pretty sure they will. I know I did. Value? How can we define it? We can't even define it even if they did. <laughs> I hope you can after this conversation, unless my work is not done. That's right. No, I love it. It was great. Thank you.
So <clears throat> maybe then the re reach out to the audience if you felt any value. <clears throat> Sorry, frog in my throat. If you perceived any value, we got any value from this conversation, from Dan's insights, let us know. Because then we can start quantifying it. That is all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, let us know by hitting that like button, share it with friends and colleagues, sharing a message on LinkedIn, joining our warm and welcoming Discord community, or attend recordings as a virtual audience. You can find all the relevant links in the show notes. We hope you'll tune back in for the next episode of the Mastering Agility podcast.